What's up, everybody? Ooh, jeez. Uh, welcome. This is the Promotional Mod Practice live chat, and I don't even know what today's date is, so I'm going to Google it to get it correct. Today's date is Wednesday, June 15th, payday for some of you, uh, June of 2016. Welcome. My name is Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the Promotional Mod Practice live chat. We go 90 minutes here on MMA Fighting. I uh, really appreciate you joining. Thank you so much. Today on the docket, uh, of course, it's always whatever you want to talk about. The likely topics probably include Fedor potentially to the UFC, what that would mean. I see there is some lingering discussion about Brock Lesnar's four-month USADA exemption. There is still a bunch of talk about the Ali Act. There, of course, are fights this weekend. The big three all have events. There's World Series of Fighting 31, I believe. Bellator 156. And then uh, UFC Fight Night 89. Is that the correct one? I can never keep the numbers straight. I believe it's 89. Yes. Uh, which, of course, is headlined by McDonald versus Thompson, which is incredible. I uh, got my branch chain amino acids. A bunch of you reached out with some advice on when to properly take them. I appreciate that. I had not noticed a much of a difference taking them inside of a workout. Some of you disagreed. Um, there's not as, uh, that much existing literature to substantiate that taking it during a workout is the best time to do it. Usually it's... Uh, uh before on an empty stomach i'm told there's is some research to that effect either way no one really cares so i'm just gonna move on from that because i know you don't give nf but i am thirsty mm. passion fruit all right <laughs> with that out of the way uh comments that turn green get priority but not exclusivity uh, a couple of housekeeping notes um Somebody has been, at, or not somebody, I guess a lot of you have been asking me, hey, where can I learn more about the Muhammad Ali Act? And certainly we've put out a ton of stuff. We've talked about some of those things here on this chat, although in a very general way, we never got to any of the specifics. Um, Mark Romandi put out a click debate article talking about some of the greater provisions, but the best uh, example I've seen in really breaking it down in almost too much detail because there is some ambiguity associated with it, but um, there is a podcast called, it's on Bloody Elbow, uh, it's a podcast called, I believe, Show Money. Um, I'm going to pull it up here in just a second. They did an entire episode, almost two hours breaking it down, and it's within a lawyer and then a guy who's just a very good reporter. Um, it's, it's tremendous. I'm going to link it up in the comments section here. Here it is, yeah. Proposed MMA Ali Act released and special guest Jamie Varner. The Jamie Varner stuff is semi-related, but you don't necessarily need to watch that to get information. But if you really want to get into the nuts and bolts of the Ali Act in a way that really no one else is, that's the best way to go. I'm going to pull this up now uh, so everyone can see. All right, I'll, I'll tweet that out and I'll put that in the comments section. So really, uh, a big uh, shout-out to MMA Analytics, Paul Gift, and then Hang Out the Face on Twitter, uh, also John Nash. So... Tons of good stuff from those guys. It can even get a little dry, but uh, I get so many emails like, hey, can you break it down for us? Uh, I could, but these guys already did a really good job of it, and um, and so there you go. Second bit of housekeeping notes related to that is actually, I had mentioned on a previous chat, I'm not sure if it was last week or two weeks ago, that in reading the press release from Representative Mark Wayne Mullen, um, that it would look like they were saying there were going to be mandatory one-year contracts. That is not true. That is only uh, the one-year reference. Hey, all this can be changed in committee or on the floor at some point during markup. But um, that one-year provision is only for options 
uh, as like add-ons to contracts, not the contracts themselves. Um, so just to keep that clear, contracts could still be long-term, um, could still be exclusive, um, but any kind of additional clause that can tie a fighter to a contract, there would be limits on that. And if you watch these guys, John Nash and Paul Gift break it down, uh, you'll hear more about that. All right. So moving on from that, appreciate everyone uh, checking it out. And uh, again, I'll tweet that and post it in the comments here so you can get a full sense of it. All right. On to the questions. All right, here we go. First one. This is unusual, but let's roll with it. UFC fighters and UFC gyms. What does it mean for a fighter to be given a UFC gym to run and own? I don't think they run it. Uh, in some cases, they might. In many cases, they won't. I know Bisping Pan and more recently, Frankie Edgar have been given a UFC gym. Do they own the gym in its entirety? I don't believe so. Uh, do they buy it off of the, the UFC off a discounted price that the UFC gift their favorite fighter at gym? as a sign of goodwill. Um, there's actually not a lot known about this. Uh, my understanding, but this is incomplete, is that they use their likeness to give them a portion of the proceeds and I think a partial ownership, but I really can't uh, speak to this in any kind of certainty. I'll try and dig in this up. I'll have uh, Frankie on, I'm sure, and I'll speak to him soon um, one way or the other and I'll bring this up, but I don't really know. Uh, it's a good question and that wasn't what I had been told from someone, but I can't, I can't be sure. But they don't really run it. I mean, running a gym is a skill set that is entirely absent or outside of what they do. I think in Edgar's case, they might. But I know in Pens and Bispings, they don't. Certainly not in Pens. Why does the Monday Morning Analyst come out at nighttime? Because if you ever caught the first episode of it, it was an uh, audio podcast that I just recorded and didn't really look at footage. It just went as an overview over things. And then... Uh, one thing turned into another, and we turned it into a video podcast. And uh, it's a one-man band, y'all. And I don't use footage rights. So I either have to take screenshots on my computer, edit them up, and then upload them, or I have to take pictures of my television with my cell phone, then upload those, organize them, and then get them ready. So it winds up taking a while to do. But the name is there. All right, UFC sale ramifications. This got wrecked last week, but you didn't get to it given Ariel's tweet last night. I think it's relevant, okay? I think there's one large issue of the UFC sale that is going overlooked. One of the potential suitors was the private equity firm BlackRock, which is a publicly traded, publicly listed company. Uh, they're BX. Uh, this means that if they purchase the UFC outright or even purchase a material stake in the UFC, shareholders of BX would be free to review the UFC's books. What do you think the ramifications of this would be? How much would the UFC's fear of transparency affect who they choose to sell to? Um, ultimately, I don't think that would prevent them from uh, a sale one way or the other, especially if it's, well, if it's material, potentially, but if it's an outright sale, I don't think they would really care necessarily, um, although you never know. But um, really hard to say what would happen if shareholders of any kind of private equity firm or hedge fund got a hold of this um, to look at it. That's a question of finance and what they would discover and what they could do with it. The information, I believe, would still be proprietary in that stage, um, but it's a good question. I'm not here. I'm over two with you guys. I, I, it's not. It's not really exactly clear what that would mean. You probably would know better than I would. Some people that claim to be MMA fans want Henderson versus Bisping for the middleweight championship. There appears to be some momentum behind that idea. Um, I don't know how much momentum. Maybe it's just driven by the fighters themselves. I don't know that there's a ton of fans clamoring for it. 
Um, there seem to be two groups of people that want this. One, Michael Bisping and people who th might think that um, people who are partial to him, who might believe that this is a chance for him to get some redemption, that this is a fight that could sell, that it's a fight he could win. Um, Henderson's still dangerous, but you know his chin's not what it used to be, and he's on his way out. He's 45 years old, right? Uh, and the other group, and this is a bigger group, it appears to me, is Henderson himself, who's also in favor of it. Um, and then his supporters who want this to be his swan song because they really believe him ending the f his career on a title fight would be the way to go. I don't know how they could possibly give a guy whose last fight is a title fight a title fight, right? I mean, how do you do that? Like, if he wins, he just relinquishes the belt and that's it. And then you have this mess on your hands. Uh, I don't know that they would really do that. But, um, but there is, if we're just sort of speaking in a blanket op observatory way, there does appear to be some interest behind this, although I think ultimately most people realize this would be so outside the norms of meritocracy. I mean, we go outside those norms quite frequently, but this would be so outside of it that um, it, 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 it would cause some problems. Someone says, Jacare deserves the next title fight. I mean, pretty clearly, right? No way he should fight anyone but the champ next. This Hendo Bisping 2 idea is cute, but there's no doubt the next shot should go to Jacare, especially since Romero is suspended. Although he won't be probably by the time he defends it, but um, taken. Right, the rise of upsets in MMA. Luke, it's no secret that the upsets of champions are occurring in this sport now more than ever before. In the past, a champion was thought to be a figure of long-term dominance that would reign over a division for years. This recent trend of upsets seems to have started in 2013 when Anderson Silva lost his championship via knockout. God, it's been that long? Jesus. Since then, champions such as Boral, Pettis, Esparza, Jones, sort of, Velasquez, Rousey, Weidman, Aldo, Dillashaw, Holm, Verdum, and Rockhold have all lost their belts in a span of only three years. As of now, both Demetrius Johnson and John Jones are the only champions that have asserted themselves as long-term rulers of their respective divisions. There's a weird way to potentially argue that Dominic Cruz has done that as well, even though he hasn't even fought um it's a complicated argument and i think ultimately a, an argument full of holes but not one that can is not worth at least considering a little that he can take that much time off return uh, assume championship form and then not even that show progress like i don't think most of us would say faber is a worse fighter than he used to be when he fought cruz the second time although maybe you could say he's not as susceptible or he's not, I should say, resistant to damage as he used to be. But you can also pretty clearly look at Dominic Cruz's game and say that it has improved fight over fight from that, even with all that time off. But I, I also gather that the lack of a regular competitive schedule makes that um, a thorny argument to make. So I'm not, I wouldn't ride on it, but I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand either. Uh, question, is the rise of upsets being caused by an increasing amount of well-rounded fighters in a rapidly evolving sport? Wow, what a great question. Um, this is a very difficult one to answer, and I wouldn't really pinpoint one particular cause. Um, there might be a, a greater share of the reasoning behind that, um, but it's probably a host of reasons that contribute to it. Um, wow, this is crazy. Well, in one case, you have a division sorting itself out, so trying to say someone didn't assert themselves long term 
um, is less surprising to me that that someone can grab a title and you may get a sense of their uh, relative strengths and then they lose it very quickly. You know, to me, it's like the dust is in the air and as it settles, we sort of focused in on one particle before all of them had really sorted themselves into any kind of real pile. That to me is not evidence necessarily of uh, this trend you sort of speak of, but I do acknowledge that there is certainly some reason to uh, argue that the title changes hands in MMA at the highest level very often. Um, so, but in the case of Esparza, for example, right, that would be sort of this dust cloud that we just sort of ascribe to one of the higher ones, uh, ultimately that may have been um, a bit premature, but in some of these other ones, these are sort of really tenured divisions. Um, Let's sort of go down the line here. Why did Burrell lose? Uh, he was very dominant, but ultimately ran to a guy who had a diverse skill set uh, in the in one department, in this case particularly the striking department, and obviously had shut down wrestling that was an adaptation and a development of the game that hurt Burrell. In the case of Pettis, it was a fighter uh, essentially overwhelming him as well, just with the totality of his game, although he beat him in the stand-up portion as well. As far as we already talked about, Jones, you know, that one wouldn't really necessarily fit. But Velasquez, uh, I believe injury and age have uh, taken a massive toll on him. In the case of Rousey, it was a lopsided loss as a consequence of a skill set she was simply and woefully unprepared for. Multiple reasons why she was unprepared for that. Uh, Weidman, it's unclear. Certainly injury played a role. Could just make an argument that Rock holds better. Um, Aldo got caught with that one punch. We didn't get a full examination of things, although certainly you could argue that um, he hasn't been fighting the way he did in his WEC days. Dillashaw lost a razor-thin decision. You could even argue that he didn't lose the fight at all. Holm, again, uh, there was a portion of her skill set she simply could not mask enough against um, Misha Tate. Verdum a really poor strategy that he uh, implemented. Uh, and then Rockhold, um, an overextension of himself into a territory of his game he hasn't really developed yet and then paying the consequence for it with a, one single left. Some of these are tactical mistakes. Some of these are um, categorical mistakes or categorical uh, challenges, right? Like you're just not a striker. Like in the case of Ronda Rousey and you couldn't do anything about it. Um, so it seems to me that it's a combination of all those things. One, if your skill set is being shown to be so lopsided, I think it says something about you, but more it says something about the nature of all these different challenges that they have to encounter. I think, two, we've already talked about this, like what defines greatness in MMA? In my belief, it's sustained dominance. I also believe that when you look at the era of George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva, we got this sense like, oh, there were these guys that held the belts forever. And certainly Liddell held the belt for a while, too, and Ortiz before him. Um, but... Um, I believe that this era of GSP and Silva is a little like, um, you know, how do we say it exactly? Like Jordan and, I'm not Jordan, I should say, like Magic and Larry in, at the same time. Uh, obviously, there are a number of greats that compete today. There are a number of greats that competed with Jordan during his time. But they're, what I'm trying to point out is it could very well... It was it was a, it was slightly anomalous that two guys who had that kind of run existed at the same time. I think is what I'm trying to say. Um, and so we got accustomed to this idea as that of the paradigm, rather than these are two all-time greats whose feats are going to be extraordinarily difficult to match over time, um, and that they ha that they happen to take place at the same time when both were fighting is is just extraordinarily unusual. Not the not this not this norm that we actually became accustomed to it was a false norm. I think that's part of that as well. So to answer your question in a roundabout way, yes, in the case of, you know, for example, Burrell losing, it was clearly 
this technical adaptation and improvement and evolution. And in the case of Esparza, I think it was the, it was just a division in flux that we got too accustomed to noticing one way or the other. In other ones, it was it was just guys overwhelmed through technical development. In the case of Pettis, Jones never really lost Velasquez. Bad technical mistake, but a guy who has really had his career impacted through injuries. Um, and then the rest of those could be a combination of them or, or you know, some kind of just degradation over time. But Aldo was a longtime champion too, right? So that wouldn't necessarily fit the, the mold either. Uh, Ariel's physical confrontation. One says, uh, correctly, I believe. I just want to say if Ariel didn't want to speak on the subject, I assume Luke would respect that and not go further into detail either. You are correct. That is his story to tell, not mine. Uh, Conor McGregor and his future at featherweight. Do you think that the crowning of an interim featherweight champion at UFC 200 ensures that Conor McGregor's next fight, after he fights Nate at 202, of course, must be a unification bout to defend his 145-pound belt? Or would the UFC go as far to have Frankie Aldo defend their interim belt while McGregor continues to fight at different weight classes? I wouldn't be shocked if Conor continues to take these big fights to help the company while 145 pounds remains in limbo, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, I don't think anything is impossible at this stage. To me, it would not in any way be difficult to... I mean, like, why is he fighting at 170 pounds to begin with, right? You, you know, Why did he fight at 170 pounds to begin with the first time? As you identify those reasons, what you basically get is that this is just a grand, not experiment, but a grand effort in accommodation matched with that accommodation just happens to overlap with UFC's financial interests, right? So that's why it happens. But he has all of these opportunities and directions he can go because he has created them for himself, much to his own credit. I guess my point is, imagine if McGregor wins, right? Imagine if McGregor wins. What next? Could you really rule out a rubber match? I don't know that you could. Could you rule out McGregor saying, well, uh, I do want to go back to 145, but what I realized over the time of doing this is that fighting at 145 requires a certain amount of time and adjustment to get used to. Fighting at 170 requires a certain amount of time and adjustment to get used to. I don't want to make that full leap. My next fight will be at lightweight as I go correctly to 170, then correctly to 155. Uh, Edgar to defend their interim title once. That to me seems entirely possible um the, the the real difficulty in trying to be a predictor of conor mcgregor is that um so much of it rides on what is um sellable so much of it rides on what kind of commercial interest there is because the kind of commercial interest that he gathers is so unique and um so fleeting this is a boom and bust sport when when this era of stars begins to die off before the new era crops up, there's going to be a down period again. We're just going to hit it. That's how it's going to be. Um, and, um, yeah. So, to answer your question, I believe personally that McGregor versus Edgar is one of those fights that needs to happen, provided that Edgar wins. And I suppose that if Aldo wins, that rematch becomes a pretty necessary one as well. Although, I I feel like the Edgar one is unique in ways that the Aldo one is not. But, um but certainly you can make a case for it, right? I wouldn't I wouldn't argue too much around that. Um, but yeah, this is uh this is a very, very slippery situation. Now the other question is what if Diaz wins? Let's say if Diaz wins relatively the same, let's say in the third round, you know, TKO or something, right? Um, Connor looks good early, looks good in the second round, almost stops Nate, and then all of a sudden just realizes he can't put the bigger man down with his punches and Nate pours it on. Something similar, right? 
um, then what? Then his chances of going to 155 become narrowed. And maybe then the 145 bout becomes much more likely. Um, that seems to me a possible scenario. I guess what I, I just believe that if he wins, he is still going to be in a position where he can call his shot. Like they, they're creating the interim belt. That gives them enough cause if they want to, to do whatever they want with it. You might think that that's, again, that's, this is outside the norm of the behaviors to which we are accustomed. I certainly am in no position to disagree, but I would, I would open your imagination a little bit and, uh, Think twice about it. Got a new gi, and you can see what it did to my fingers, man. Tore them up, and I can't. Every time I f move my hand, it tears open the scab. See that? Looks better today than it did a few days ago. This is from Saturday. Uh, irony of the CM Punk signing. CM Punk was signed to the UFC because of the large number of viewers he would likely attract from WWE. But because of his lack of experience in MMA, he has had to spend almost two years training in it and away from the spotlight. Is it possible that CM Punk lost some much of the fame that warranted signing him in the first place? Um, it certainly reduces some of the novelty. Right now that there's Lesnar, you're going to get a big portion of that. And so that, that Mr. Brooks, Mr. Punk, was the guy who could do that prior to him in a way that no one else in that roster could. Uh, sure. So it reduces some of that novelty, though. I still believe that once he finally makes it there, um, there it will be interest. And I think people are frustrated and upset that it hasn't happened yet. But I don't buy the idea that they're they've tuned out. Um, they will tune back in again as long as it's not like another year or something where we're, we're really pushing the boundaries of things. But even as frustrated as people are, and I and I don't deny that they are. Um, there's still interest, but that, that, that novelty of being that guy who can do that is kind of interesting. I actually feel like this Lesnar scenario is really important to think about for just a second. You know, Lesnar is a lifelong athlete and we know, um, distinguished collegiate wrestler and, uh, obviously a physical specimen, even as he approaches 40 years old, right? Um, this should tell you how hard it is to be a fighter, that it is easier for a guy who was a very successful, if a short lived fighter, who had very identifiable flaws, it is easier for that guy to take five years off and come back and get right back into sort of a, a, at least a semi-routine of the swing of things versus starting from what is basically scratch. I mean, doing privates with the Gracie brothers is great. That's not real training. And hitting pads and even and even working out for like a month with your friends while you're off the road, that that is, uh, that's, that's not nothing. It's not negligible, but that's not real training. It's not. It's not real training. And I think, of course, um, I think no one more than CM Punk, Mr. Phil Brooks would tell you that, right? Um, that that's how hard it is. Now, of course, there are other factors involved, namely this guy's age and the fact that he's not the athlete that Lesnar is. But this is sort of my point. It is easier for an aging athlete who's been out for five years to get back on track in some kind of way than it is for a guy who's not really basically that kind of a prof professional athlete, has no fighting background whatsoever, frankly, no real training background in terms of an actual fight camp. Um, than it is for him to get going, right? That's how hard it is. That's how hard. That's what the difference is between super duper athletes and guys who are just work hard. Can you think of three fighters in the top ten of the middleweight division that you would favor Bisping to beat? Um, let me look at the rankings as such. Let's see. Let's see. All right. I would favor in the top 10, right? All right. 
I gotta see who's in the top ten first. I mean, I have my own top ten, but let's see who's in the top ten. Luke Rockhold. I mean, certainly you wouldn't. That would be competitive. I don't know that would favor him to beat Rockhold, but that doesn't seem out of the line uh, of question, or it doesn't seem out of uh, line to consider. Chris Weidman, I would not. Jacare, I would not. Vitor, I would. Anderson, he already did. Whitaker, I would. Machida, I would. That's a tough one, though. But I would. Sasi's a tough one too. I don't know. Tim Kennedy, no. Uriah Hall, probably. And then there you go. So there's a few there. Um, the Whitaker one would be tough, but Veltor's uh, number four. Now, whether he deserves to be number four is a different question, but he is four. Um, Hall, certainly. Kennedy, no, since he lost the wrestling. But even that one, the second time around, he might, you know, second around, his wrestling might be better, especially since Kennedy's been off. So that's a little bit of a tough one, too. But I get the point. I mean, the point of the question is not can you name three fighters. You can probably name three fighters um, who you would favor him to beat. The question is, uh, what does it say that you have to have that exercise to reassure yourself of his confidence as a champion? That's a different one altogether, right? Mm. That medicinal fruit. Uh, main event, Rodriguez versus... Casares. Uh, Luke, many fans were puzzled when this fight was announced as the main event for UFC Fight Night in Salt Lake City. Although Yair and Casares are uh, Casares are both exciting, talented up-and-comers, they don't seem to fit the mold of a main event at this stage in their respective careers. I disagree with that. This could cause a significant attendance issue considering the UFC had to switch venues to Utah to California due to low ticket sales in 2010. I think they had, they had abysmal ticket sales. And they put it on on Sunday in Salt Lake City, which, you know, the UFC is actually really good about their due diligence. I think we can all admit that, but they're not perfect. And that has to be one of the all-time great F-offs of their uh, event calendar planning that I've ever seen. Let me see about this one, um, just to see who else has been added to it. I'll finish reading the question here. Salt Lake City. So this is going to be UFC Fight Night 92. Here's who's on the fight card so far. Just Rodriguez and Caceres. Um, question will the UFC continue making main events like this to increase the profile of young prospects who may go on to become champion um, yeah well first of all the, the Caceres one is interesting because um, he has had a bit of a rejuvenation um, and had looked really good in the Cole Miller fight at least in the first two rounds but, of course, you know, competitive, at least to some extent in that third. You know, avoiding that armbar the way he did was was really great. Um, and Rodriguez, I think we can all admit, is really, a, you know, coming along quite nicely. I, I have no problem with the fight. I frankly don't have a problem with the fight night card or that headlining itself, provided we, we see what else is going to be on there. A um, couple things, though, right? They've never actually been to the Salt Lake City, Utah market. I don't know what kind of markets you guys live in, but um, one of my experiences throughout my career has been when the UFC goes to a place the first time, there's really a lot of enthusiasm about it. And not that the car doesn't matter, but that the audience is very forgiving if the card is not necessarily the best because they're really there to take in that UFC experience in a way they haven't been able to before. So if the fight night booking on this one is not quite as great, it's because there doesn't necessarily have to be to sell tickets. That 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 new car smell for UFC fans uh, really is quite powerful for them. That's the first one. Second one I'd say is uh, I really like the fight itself. 
Um, Rodriguez versus uh, Casares is 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 great. Uh, I favor Rodriguez out of the gate because I think he's just a tremendous tremendous talent. But uh, I don't want to disrespect um, uh, Casares at all. Uh, he has certainly improved over the course of his career. The only interesting part about this is I would put that I would have saved that one. They didn't necessarily need to be from that place, right? We talked about this with Dillashaw and Cruz fighting in Boston. Neither have any real ties to that community and. Um, there's a question of, you know, should the UFC really be better about trying to put fighters in places where they're from? And I would make a case that they, w that they should, but of course, you know, they're making an effort with Stipe Miocic at the Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland, Ohio. But in this particular case, you have two guys who speak Spanish, right? Fluently. Um, you know, I, they wouldn't necessarily need to be from a place where there was a heavy, uh, Latino community or one with their Latino press they're trying to reach out to. But in this particular case, it's like Lily White, Utah. Again, nothing wrong with that. It's just uh, you've got two guys who have this sort of bilingual ability. That means they can do media in two different languages, preserving that for to the extent you're going to go to. And I know one of them is from Florida, but maybe a different place in Florida or even, um, you know, the New York area, New Jersey. Uh, just any, uh, Chicago area, a any place where there is a particular amount of uh, Latin media that you could attract. Um, not that that's the be-all, end-all. Just sort of thinking through what would be useful. But in the end, what I really ultimately believe is that because it's the first time there, whatever disappointments you might have for them as a headliner, I suspect the Salt Lake City crowd will be happy. The card will probably be good enough that will get you to tune in no matter what. So FS1 will be happy. And this is kind of how it works for right now anyway. Uh, preempting the tainted supplements theory for Chad Mendez. All right. If tainted supplements is a prevalent and recurring phenomenon, which it is, then it cannot also be a legitimate excuse to testing positives for PEDs. This is this gentleman talking, not me. He continues. We can excuse a fighter for testing positive only in the event of a real anomaly. If one in every 20 pots of supplements is spiked, that's just a number that he invented, Fighters have no excuse for not knowing. You cannot have it both ways, no question. This was just a comment, as I am tired of hearing that this is a legitimate excuse. Well, prepare to be fatigued, um, because it is a legitimate excuse, right? Um, this is very simple to figure out. This is not difficult. And if USADA wants to change the rules, then this entirely changes the course of the debate and the conversation completely. It is not in any way banned by USADA to take supplements. They do not... Uh, tell you you cannot take supplements. In fact, um, uh, while they don't outright encourage it, uh, and in some ways discourage it, uh, they allow it. It is it is in the bylaws allowed, um, either de facto or explicitly. Um, you can take them. Uh, and if you read the label and it says, I doesn't have this and it doesn't have that, um, and USADA says, if it doesn't have these on the label, you can take them, and then you pop positive for it, um, first of all, the six month is not really all of that onerous a suspension. It shouldn't really hurt anyone's feelings. Maybe in the case of Tim Means, it caused him some economic difficulty. But someone who's financially established, like Leo de Machida or Chad Mendez, this is not a particularly onerous burden. And and more than that, if you want to simply say you can't take any of these supplements, you are not allowed to purchase any 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 um, fitness or health products from the vitamin shop or GNC or any kind of place like that, bodybuilding.com, whatever, then do so. But if you're not allowing that and you're giving these guys, you're telling them do your due diligence with this to the extent possible and you're only giving them a six-month suspension, I don't agree with it, but I think we're having a conversation about what is basically a non-problem uh, or not much of a problem, 
right? And by the way, you can go get uh, Keto or Keto 7 DHEA right next to your uh, dandelion weed at your local grocery store, CVS or Walgreens. Um, it's right there because it was put onto the water list because they said it had an anabolic profile before the research was really in. And then when the research came in and showed it didn't have an anabolic profile, WADA just didn't take it off. So there's a little, a little history lesson for about, for that, by the way. It's listed as having an anabolic profile when it clearly does not. Um, okay, but be that as it may, forget forget just that. In the case of this, I um, I, I, I don't really see what the problem is here. Y yes, you you know, the six months to me is like, you know, you, this is the risk you ran, but it's not so onerous. It's not so career changing that you really have to uh, worry about it. Again, it impacted Tim Means in a particularly negative way, but, um, and we don't know that this is the case with Chad Mendes. Chad Mendes might have done something really serious or not. I don't really know. But yeah, I completely buy it. Um, in fact, I almost look at it as a public service. The FDA, they really only go after supplement makers after the fact when there's been issues reported or if they fail to be in compliance with manufacturing standards, um, which is a completely different way to measure the effectiveness of the industry. It's a heavily, 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 heavily lobbied industry, which is why the rules are so lax and frankly negligent uh, to a certain extent. USADA uh, is almost, and I wish there was more about it, but in a way what they're doing is almost a public service to some of these guys. Uh, or at least a private service, right? They're telling you this product just simply cannot be trusted. I wish the list of these products would be named um, so that we had a better sense of it because that would actually be really beneficial. Here is, in fact, how lax our regulation is. We are identifying one by one all of these supplement makers who are not in compliance, maybe for their own um, you know, manufacturing standards, but certainly not in, in terms of truth and advertising on what's on the label. Um, so yeah, like if you're if you're not... If it's not wrong to take them, if you do your due diligence by looking at the label and in proving after the fact that the supplement was tainted and you only get a six-month suspension, this to me is not a situation worth fretting about one way or the other um, at all, quite frankly. True false. Wonder Boy versus Rory McDonald could be the most technical striking match of the year. I feel like that's true. Or it could be a wrestling match. We'll see. Uh, Rockhold getting knocked out by Bisping is enough reason to believe that he has a questionable chin. Mm, no, I don't think he saw the punch coming. Uh, Anthony Pettis stylistically matches up with matches up better against the featherweight elite than he does against the lightweight elite. Can't match up much worse. Giving a title shot to number 13 ranked Dan Henderson would be a slap in the face of the elite middleweight contenders. Yes, it would. The new early weigh-in procedure was a key factor in the fighters' exciting performances at UFC 199. Don't know, but it makes me consider things. It's a small, too small of a sample size to really say one way or the other, but it is interesting. The UFC 199 press conference provided more than enough material for Bisping Rockhold 3. True. Frank Mir is likely agitated that he can't fight Lesnar because he's on suspension. Maybe a little bit. But I also suspect he's moved on. Lawler showed just how terrifying he is when he said that he would have taken Connor's soul if he fought him. Yeah, that was crazy. It's almost laughable that Cody Garbrandt thinks he's in Dominic Cruz's head. You put a question mark at the end, but it really isn't a question. Um, it's almost laughable. I don't know. The UFC aerial incident was the biggest moment in MMA media history. I'm not sure what biggest moment means, but certainly the biggest 
most high-profile incident of the media having poor relations with the UFC, yes. Maybe not if we get Cruz Dillashaw too. Oh, someone's answering. Uh, here we go. Connor hires BJJ star Dylan Dennis to help prepare uh, for Diaz at UFC 202. What do you think of McGregor hiring his uh, the young grappling sensation and Marcelo Garcia black belt Dylan Dennis to help him prepare for his rematch with Nate Diaz? What does this tell you about how serious Connor is taking the rematch? And what are you hoping and expecting to see now that Connor is training with Dan as well? Uh, again, you have to have a really measured, you know, sense of what can this really do for somebody. Um, you know, talk about Danish real quickly. Danis is an incredible guy, um, technical everywhere, young, constantly improving, um, good gi, good no gi. I, I'm not sure what his titles would say, but I've always preferred his gi game personally. Um, great knee bars, uh, good leg locks generally, can wrestle a little bit. Um, quick, lethal back taker. Uh, obviously, all those guys can play all of Marcelo's game too, you know, X guard, and they can play deep half and stuff like that. He's really technical everywhere. And so I think what you're probably going to get with Danis and McGregor training is not merely looking out for things that Nate Diaz does or doesn't do particularly well. Um, but more, you know, how to uh, get out of entanglements, how to get into entanglements that favor you. Um, that's a different way of thinking about things, right? How to get into like a 50-50. Like there's, there's a guy I know who's like really good at leg locks. There are certain entanglements I will necessarily get into that they're a little stalemate-ish, but I know I can shut him down uh, if I do it. So that's something else to think about he might do. Um, but really, he's probably going to look at Connor's game and be like, okay, what are you really good at? And, and what someone like Dennis can do when they look at your game you know, what people often think about like when someone like Danis comes around or whatever the case, they always say, uh, this guy has an incredibly complex game. And that's true. But what they basically do for you is they simplify your game. They look at what you do well, they look at what you do poorly. They look at ways to improve it and look at suggestions they can give you. And they just fill in all the different pieces of the puzzle that have been missing. So in a way, what they really do is they simplify your game. They don't simplify it by uh, taking away things and making you do less, although sometimes that's true, depending on what you're doing, if you're doing it wrong. What they often do is they just give you the last piece of the detail that once you incorporate it, it becomes a greater whole. Um, and I suspect you'll probably see a little bit of that, you know. Uh, what can you do from half guard? What can you do from guard? Separation, uh, sweeps, attacks, how to, you know, wh whatever, whatever. He can do all of it. Danis can do all of it. He's incredible at all of that. Um, now, there is a point to be made here is that no matter what he does, even in two months, three months of training with Danis, he's not going to catch up to Nate Diaz on the ground. It's not going to happen. And moreover, um, it's not like Nate Diaz is training with some scrubs on the ground. You know, in fact, what I would say is I know Conor McGregor has been really a vocal advocate of not leaving who you're training with. And I'm not here to tell him that he should. I don't know that that would actually benefit him. And I think in fact that bringing in Danis is the right thing to do. Um, but it just sort of shows you that, you know, not, not like Nate Diaz is moving around camps all the time either. But I guess my point is, is um, there is something to be said for going out and finding the right training partners and finding the right training environment rather than staying with you. Again, I am not saying that that's what Conor McGregor needs to do, but that he has to fly in and ship these guys. Again, that works for some people. The question is long term, will it work for his game? We'll only have to see over time. We can't really say at this, this point in time, but just sort of, Keep that in mind as we proceed. So it's it's nothing but a benefit. I think Danis will be a tremendous help. But um, this won't turn McGregor's jiu-jitsu better than Diaz's. That's not that that may not, that may never happen in the totality of his career. Uh, just keep that in mind. 
Those is Gunny Nelson. I would have thought training with Gunny Nelson would have been enough to co uh, help Connor prepare for Nate. I can't believe we're still going over this. I can, you and I can go train with Gunnar Nelson, and it will make us better than if we train with some guy who has a big beer belly in the middle of Plano, Texas, or whatever. But that doesn't mean you're going to get really so good you can just do the amazing things beyond the scope of what's actually possible. Training with Gunnar Nelson, I'm sure, has been hugely valuable for Conor McGregor, but it's not enough. It's not enough just to train with one really good black belt or maybe two or three really good black belts. you got to train with 50, 100 good black belts. You go to some of these academies in Brazil, and this is less the case these days, but there was times I've talked to guys who go down there and it's like there'll be you know, 20 black belts, 15 brown belts, something insane in the room. You know, you go to some schools, you may get one or two or three black belts, a few brown belts, you know, 10 purples, 20 blues. It's really bottom heavy at the triangle. And, um, and you know, that there's not a whole lot you can really do with that. I mean, there's, it's not, it's not, it's, it's super valuable. Any kind of training environment is valuable, but you have to understand that there's a real limit to what one guy like Gunnar Nelson can do as good as he is. And he is very good. And plus Gunnar Nelson's going to have his own style. There's going to be certain things he does really well that Dennis doesn't. There's going to be a lot of things that Dennis does well that Gunnar Nelson doesn't. There's going to be things that Gunnar doesn't know that Dennis does. There's going to be things Dennis knows that Gunnar doesn't. And it goes back and forth, uh, all, all, all different kinds of permutations, which is why you got to get a lot of looks from a lot of different people, right? And also, you said help him a bit enough to help Connor prepare for Nate. All the help from Gunnar Nelson and Dylan Dennis in the world is not going to catch up Connor McGregor and Nate Diaz. Diaz is a black belt and has been one for a while and has been a very good one for a while. It's going to take years, truly. It will take years for Conor McGregor to even remotely approach the totality of his game. That doesn't mean he won't find enough to shut it down or get out of the way of it. That's different. But to match it, years if ever. Uh... It's a funny question. Ronda versus CM Punk. What's up, Luke? Who's more likely to fight in 2016? Ronda Rousey or CM Punk? Also, hit him up. It's also one of my favorite tracks of all time. Uh, and then someone notes correctly, Punk is rumored for 202. So I'll say that. But uh, I, either is still touch and go. Uh, sorry. Dave Schaller just tweeted some interesting fight metric info, Luke. Um, yeah, they, the media, they, uh, UFC sent this to all the media recently, this like a long stat sheet. The athletes on the UFC 200 card have combined to earn a whopping 93 UFC fight night bonuses, and this is the record for combined bonuses on any single UFC card. What are your thoughts on these bonus facts? What does this tell you about what we can perhaps look forward to at 200? Well, I don't know what's going to happen with these fights. You might, not, you might get all decisions. You never know how particular matchups are going to go. Um, but that these guys are, you know, among their peers, finishers, or among their peers, uh, strong performers is what it essentially tells you. But but this is the argument we were making before in the MMA beat, and everyone was like, oh, there's no way that's true. Is it? Uh, that, you know, this is before Lesnar was even added to it. The UFC 200 card is excellent by any measurement, by any measurement. That it has the kind of star power that you would want, that it has, you know, that X factor that you're really uh, hoping for. That's a different kind of question. And those are relevant for evaluating card quality as well. But um, but in terms of, you know, what kind of participants did you line up for this event? It absolutely kills it on that question. No doubt about it. It's it's all ranked, uh, not all, but it's a lot of ranked credentialed competitors who have a strong history in the UFC. 
um, or excitement about their future or a combination of both. It's, it's a lot of championship quality competitors. It's, it's a great, great card. It's a great card. Uh, and you know, that doesn't make it, you know, above reproach or something like that, but, but this is evidence. This is sort of, this to me is not that it tells you something new. It just reaffirms what we already knew, which was whatever belly aching your individual belly aching about the card may be. And again, I can understand if you don't, you don't have to love it, but, um, it's a good card. It's a good card. Some funny artwork in there. Um, let's see. Uh, do you expect 200 with Lesnar to break previous record numbers? Uh, maybe. And will this new record then in turn be broken by Connor versus Nate 2 at UFC 202? I think that's the biggest one, really. That's the biggest individual fight this calendar year. Uh, whether that event will do more, hard to say, but I think it's competitive at a minimum. Uh, regardless, which one, 200 or 202, does best in your opinion? If I had to... Hard to say. 200 is going to have a ton of promotion. Um, maybe 202. I don't know. I'm kind of leaning 202, but it's really... It's uh, it's up in the air. Uh, Cowboy versus Predator. A really interesting under-the-radar fight happening Saturday. Uh, do you think Sorony can deal with Cote's size, power, and grappling? Yeah, the grappling is the one that's interesting to me. On the feet, um, you know, Cerrone can stay out of the way for the most part, use his range. I think he'll be okay. Uh, but the grappling, like, Cerrone's a really good guard player, and maybe that might be enough of a deterrent for Cote. But Cote is big and strong for that weight class. He's got decent takedowns. I think Cerrone's takedown defense is massively improved, but it is not um, the best part of his game. And so I really wonder tying him up, pressuring, using his size. You know, if you got a size advantage, you want to use that, right? You want to lean on a guy. You want to wear on a guy. You want to pull on a guy. You want to take a guy down sometimes. I think that's sort of what I'm looking at here. So um, not that we can discount Cowboys' chances by interest of the imagination, but, uh, you know, they are, weight, they are weight classes for a reason. And it will be interesting to see how he does against a guy who, you know, fought as high as, high as middleweight and, has leaned down to welterweight, even though this is in the latter chapter of his career. I need some, I need some advertising on this podcast. I was looking up some of the numbers from like other podcasts that I listen to that have like a ton of sponsors and they have like one tenth the number of this podcast. If you combine our SoundCloud and like iTunes numbers, with this, the YouTube numbers, more than enough to get some to get some extra Skrilla around here, man. I'm trying to get paid. If Edgar beats Aldo, is there any way Connor can make 145 in time for NYC after ballooning to 170 for 202? Wait, what? I I doubt it. Like three months, so August, September, October, like three months later. I mean, maybe, but the question is, does he want to do that? You know, this is what I'm talking about when I say if he wins, he might be like, okay, I'm going to go back down, but I'm going to go 155 next. You know, that'd be crazy. 
and entirely possible. Entire, you, he, the world is truly his oyster because his differentiation from the path, really his keeping on the path too, but provided it's done in an interesting way, his deviation from the path of normal matchmaking for someone at his uh, level and his, and his responsibility as a title holder, it still aligns with Zufa's interests. In fact, it aligns with them in ways that can almost exceed the traditional path, which is why they allow it to happen. They wouldn't allow it to happen if it wasn't in their interest, but it is. Uh, greatly so. Greatly so. So I don't really think you can discount anything. Um, there are going to be some organizational standards and some best practices that I suspect they'll adhere to, but I, I firmly believe virtually anything is in play. Uh, Luke Rory's fight against Thompson. Faraz has brought in kickboxer Raymond Daniels, who's amazing, and national karate champions like Jonathan Doucette. Faraz is able to hold his own against them. Do you think that training with karate champs will encourage Roy to make this fight mainly a stand-up battle? No. Uh, it'll be a stand-up battle to the extent that it needs to be. Like, if he comes out, let's, I don't know that this is the likeliest possibility, but let's say he comes rushing out and goes for a takedown and it gets blocked. So now, you know, he was trying to shake things up, but they at least prepare for two contingencies. One, you actually get him down and proceed from there. Or two, he stuffs it and you have to get out of range again. Um, I, I suspect they've prepared for both of those contingencies if that were one of their game plans. But I guess my point being is, I suspect Rory is prepared to stand with him as long as he needs to, but not in ways that would uh, benefit uh, Thompson. Pr providing any kind of range seems to be something that he doesn't want to do. He's going to want to crowd him a lot. He's going to want to come in with his jab. He's going to want to cut off the cage quickly. Um, he's going to want to, you know, to I probably I think to the extent possible, probably turns into a grappling match, turns into a, a fence affair. Um, Perhaps kick his legs, perhaps get inside on the boxing, perhaps go the just anytime you're outside of his kicking range, you know it's death. You cannot beat him under those circumstances. Right, so I think when Faraz is hold his own, I think that's what he means. Like Roy McDonald is not going to beat Raymond Daniels in a kickboxing contest. It's not going to happen, right? Um, but he might be able to control Raymond Daniels enough to do something else in a different kind of context. And I think those guys are going to show him, you know, here are ways we can be cornered for an MMA fight. Here are things you can do to set up entries to jab your way inside, whatever is necessary to do. Uh, here's the things you can do. And I think that's probably what we'll expect to see because as good of a striker as Roy McDonald is, and he's a very different kind of striker. Um, I don't know if that, I don't know about that range issue. To me, that's really critical that the, the real estate issue, the range issue here is very, very, very important. And I don't think you want to cede that to Thompson because he can end the fight on an, in an instant if you do that. The question is a mile long. That one, I'll have to come back to it. Luke, does Brock make CM Punk Luke more stupid simply by showing up and fighting? You actually spelled my name rather than the word L-O-O-K. Um, no, I don't think so. I mentioned before, to me, it's not a surprise that a guy who used to do this and hasn't for a while can just get back in the swing of things in some kind of way before a guy who never really has and isn't the same kind of athlete. That actually makes perfect sense. Uh, Jacare on Hendo. Jacare recently stated that Dan Henderson's campaign to fight Bisping is ridiculous. I can see why he would say that. Uh, Souza or Hendo, who gets the title shot first? I would have to believe Jacare. 
but you never know. You never know. Um, let me just, I, I, what's interesting about this debate about Henderson and Bisping and organizational norms and consumer pressure, this is the one thing about the Ali Act, just to pull a, a, a diversion here for just a second, if I may. Um, this is one of the issues that's giving folks um, the heebie-jeebies with the Ali Act for MMA as it's currently written. Now, again, UFC has uh, gone down to Foggy Bottom in my hometown and got some lobbyists. And, well, you should see the lobbyists they got. Like, they actually picked, like, I won't say the best firm in town because that's not true. They didn't do that. But they may have picked the most appropriate one because you can go to, like, John Podesta and these, these national-level campaigns. But that's not really what the UFC needs to do here, right? I mean, they're battling federal legislation, but what are they doing? They're going, not to K Street, but to Foggy Bottom. You can look up Foggy Bottom, Washington, D.C., and see where it's at. But it's close to Georgetown. It's in sort of a southern side of the city where uh, a lot of lobbyists reside and have in law firms and things like that. Um, George, George GW is down there, George Washington University. Georgetown is just on the other side of it. Um, anyway, uh, they got a lobbying firm where it's it's really committee-driven and granular-driven, right? In other words, they're like, where is the legislation and which committees and who do we have on these committees uh, and who do we have in-house that either knows people on this committee or used to work for people on this committee? Let's put them together. Like, it's super targeted in that direction. And I suspect you might see some national uh, or you might see some kind of advertising campaign to accompany it, but this is a very different challenge than fighting something that's in the public consciousness. This is, they're not... The average person walking down the street, if I ask them what's their opinion about the new Mark Wayne Mullen uh, and Kennedy-backed uh, legislation for mixed martial arts in Congress, most people are going to be like, what are you talking about? They don't, they don't know anything. They're not battling a public debate here. What they are battling is um, the challenge of getting people in committee as a first step to crush it. So I, I thought their selection of the lobbying firm to help them was like <laughs> really good. Uh, if that's what you want, it's really good. But be that uh, here, here, neither here nor there. Um, this question about like, should Bisping fight Henderson? Should he fight Jacare? There's a lot of debate about it, some consternation about it, all of it understandable, I think. But what, what really stands out to me in reference to this Ali Act is, you know, what kind of matchmaking world do you really want? Because what the Ali Act would do, although it doesn't actually call for the creation of sanctioning bodies, but that sanctioning bodies would fill a certain role, that there would be independent rankings and that these rankings would serve to give fighters standing no matter what organization that they're in and things like that. Um, um, what gives fans um, some pause about the Ali Act is that it would turn matchmaking into much more of a fighter-friendly version of it right? And the problem with that is one of the keys, one of the geniuses, this took me a while to appreciate, but people are always like, oh, the, you know, the UFC has fans in ways that other organizations don't. And that's true. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the key reasons for that is while they've made any number of mistakes over the years and any organization would, the UFC has done a really good job of making sure there is as close to an alignment as possible between consumer interest and promoter interest, or consumer interest and promoter product. The UFC's interests and their product aligns very closely with the larger consumer's interests. They wanna live in a world where they get to see the best fights made. 
They want to live in a world where they get to see the best guys fight each other on a regular basis. They don't want to live in a world, most fans, where even though they may appreciate the abstract idea of giving fighters rights and privileges and courtesies, they don't want one that extends so far that the, the product, as they understand it, as they have been receiving it, becomes affected. And I think that's one of the challenges of the Ali Act. It's not merely that it reorganizes the sport, but you ultimately get roughly the same thing. No, it could potentially, and again, this is all major potentialities with a ton of ambiguity, but I think one of the major objections to it is that is this new model that it calls for, although it doesn't even really spell out how we get there necessarily, but assuming that we have a vague idea of what they're talking about, is this idea of you know federal mandated you know rankings, uh, sanctioning bodies um, that we currently don't have? Is this the method by which we're going to get the best product? It's, there's a strong argument to make that it's not uh, for the consumer. It might be the best um, protections for the fighter, but what you have to decide is to what extent does fighter welfare matter as much to you as as what the ultimately what the product looks like how much of an imbalance in the relationship between the promoter and the fighter are you willing to tolerate to preserve the integrity of that product because that's really what some not all that's what some of this legislation will will, will challenge so when you think about should best being fight henderson should you know whatever the case may be and even in ranking even in boxing the rankings are manipulated promoters have close associations with management management uh promoters have close association with boxers themselves um you, you get or, or with sanctioning bodies that the promoters and the sanctioning but you, there's all kinds of relationships but and it's the, the question is more complicated than this because there is no national sanctioning body one of the earliest versions of the ali act called for the usbc the united states boxing commission which was going to be this federal um, regulatory framework that enforced the uh, so this acting commission to enforce some of these things and it never did so there's a question about the level of enforcement that's really there you know we got people like al Heyman out there but even that question is kind of complicated but i guess i'm just pointing out that like the ufc has sort of assumed over time this de facto role and not only have they assumed it and sort of kept the belts within themselves they've become their own sanctioning bodies. The, the belts don't belong to anybody else they control it um but the, the question is there, they like their product to align as closely as possible with consumer interests. So if there's really a ton of consumer interest for Henderson, maybe they'll make that. Uh, if there's not, then they'll make the Jacare one. And that really, they, they kind of have that choice and that freedom to, and that latitude to make any number of different choices. The question is, is that the model you prefer with all this uncertainty and maybe creating fights that don't make a lot of sense, but they make a lot of sense for commercial interests? Or do you prefer a model where it's really this rankings-driven kind of operation that is called for um, in, in the legislation? And that, I think, is why some fans are very much like, uh. uh Luke, will the sale of the UFC bring an end to the Ultimate Fighter? Can we just talk about how no one is talking about the Ultimate Fighter? Like, I'm not, I'm not, I swear to God, I'm not even bashing it. I don't care enough about it to bash it one way or the other. It doesn't matter to me. I understand that Fox Sports probably still gets a lot of value out of it, even at, you know, less than 400,000 people a, a week watching it. Um, you know, it's getting, you know, it's getting literally in some ways a tenth of what it used to get in terms of viewership, literally in some ways, less than a tenth of some of its higher points. Just, just think about that for a second. Um, but I don't, I'm not even trying to hate on it. It's just, I don't see anyone talking about it. 
I see occasional um, pieces of media content that focus on it in a way where, you know, they have a sort of dedicated coverage around it. You know, like this is what we would do every week just because it's on. But I don't see any organic conversation about the content of the show anywhere among any fans. I, I, I Only questions I get about tough are do people still care about it? I never really get questions about, you know, did you see what happened last night in any kind of way that assumes that people watch it ever? Uh, clearly people do, right? I mean, I'm not saying that they don't, but uh, man, they are. They are going <laughs> to they are gonna wring every drop of water out of that sponge before they throw it away, it appears. Do you think Will Brooks is or will be a top five lightweight? Yes, I think he will be a top five lightweight. Who would you match him up with first in the UFC? Um, Cerrone would be a good one. I'd like to see that. He welcomed Eddie Alvarez too, didn't he? So that'd be kind of fun. Oh my God. I, 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 this is a fight I've been wanting to wanting to see for a while. In a magical world, Edgar would drop to 135 to fight Cruz. How sublime would that footwork be? Can you compare and contrast the two? Who has the advantage? The two completely different kinds of footwork there. Um, I'd have to ask around about who has the advantage because I'd, I'd, have, I'd have to think about that for a while. Uh, but yes, I, that's another fight. I don't think it needs to get made, but please, someone find a way to make it. Find a way to make that one, please. That would just be absolutely incredible. But it's very two different kinds of footwork. One's a little more traditional um, boxing footwork adapted for MMA. And the other one is just this entirely unique, almost dance. Like, Dominic Cruz has something like modern capoeira or something. I, I don't know how to explain it exactly. You know, capoeira was, you know, uh, self-defense hidden through dancing, but really just dance. Um, not self-defense, you know, um, well, a little bit of self-defense, I suppose. Not street self-defense, but, you know, slave self-defense. Um, hidden through and then ultimately just became dance in total. But I kind of feel like it's like that a little bit, you know. It's 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 uh, it's footwork and it's tactical and it's it's just so modular, right? I mean, it doesn't it doesn't feel like it comes from anything. It feels like he just takes different pieces of things and finds ways to add it in and make it work. And it's this entirely original thing all by itself that looks a little like dancing when put quickly. Um, but it's just, he's a perpetual motion machine. And uh, I don't know, he would have, that would be interesting because I think Edgar's boxing, the, the accuracy of his punching would give him problems. He could at least mix up the wrestling in ways I don't think other guys could. He'd stay out of the way of a lot of things. Uh, he wouldn't fade in, in later in fights. It would that would be a hell of a fight, man. A hell of a fight. Chad Mendez and PEDs. What the hell? Chad Mendez has never been popped for anything before. I don't think he's ever even been accused by another fighter. Certainly, he's been one of the outspoken ones against PEDs. Also, I've seen his physique since college. It has not changed. Not only that, nobody from the entire Alpha Male camp has ever popped. My question is this. We know that there's a problem with the supplement industry, but with these ridiculous substance bans on USADA that they're putting on athletes, is it possible you could get popped for food that you bought at the supermarket because the farmer was giving drugs to his cows to produce more milk pigs to get better faster? Well, that's a question for a nutritionist or a doctor in ways that I can't answer other than to say 
we saw that um, there was a case of the Mexican soccer team and the NFL football player for the Houston Texans and the NFL, I think it was the NFL PA, the NFL itself warned players, if you're going to Texas, you need to be careful, or not Texas, if you're going to go to Mexico, be careful what you're eating because they were testing positive for clenbuterol from eating too much beef. Um, if that's the case here, I don't know. We don't, we don't, we don't really know what he tested positive for. So that makes any kind of challenge, um, you know, really difficult. By the way, I believe if, um, ask this, I don't want to say it without knowing actually. You see the second fight between Gedalia versus Jacek being close again. Yeah, I do. Um, I think Gedalia, I thought she won the first one. I still think that the takedown defense of Jacek is improved, but uh, Gedalia is really good and athletic about punching at range, then getting into range for a takedown. She's strong. She can kind of muscle in ways that other women in her division can't. She's a really good athlete. I mean, that's really, to me, the interesting part here is that She's athletic and dynamic and quick and explosive, and um, and she can strike, and she can wrestle, and she can do jiu-jitsu. And so she's going to take her lumps. Like, can Jacek win or lose is going to hand out a beating to somebody. But, um, yeah, like, Kadalia, she's a hell, she's a total package, man. Total package. Um, there's not much in the game she's bad at. Uh, TJ and the Tooth on their podcast, they said something to the effect of, if you want to be a journalist, don't aspire to become an MMA journalist. What are your thoughts on their statement? I don't have any. Uh, and your reporter in becoming, excuse me, in your journey in becoming a reporter and analyst, have you personally witnessed experiences when ethical lines are being blurred that you can discuss? Um, I don't know what that means, though. If you want to be a journalist, don't aspire to become one. You should aspire to be whatever you want, but certainly you should hold yourself like whether you are a journalist for anything, that in and of itself is not a, you're just a journalist, <laughs> right? I mean, the sort of subcategorization of it and assuming like that, that, that MMA is the modifier of it makes it a lesser activity is the ultimately fatal flaw there uh, in the argument. I don't know what to make of that because I haven't heard the whole thing. I like both of those guys, but I don't know what that means. I don't know what they're trying to say necessarily without hearing the first uh, little part of their comments. But yeah, I mean, if you're asking me, like, has MMA media been as good as it needed to be? No. No. But I don't know what you what area of journalism you can't say that about. You know. Uh, someone asked me, what's the fastest way to get blocked by me on Twitter? Just basically be unpleasant to talk to. If you are unpleasant to talk to, I just don't. I would like Twitter to the extent possible to be reasonably pleasant. If you are unreasonably unpleasant, then we just have to part ways. No hard feelings. Um, this is a good one, too. Fedor's strange comments. Let me just be clear here. I became a fan of MMA around 2009 
long after the Fedor talk of being the greatest and such was over. The fascination in him seems to me beyond ridiculous. Fedor's been saying that he's been open to signing with the UFC. Would you be in favor of that and why? I'm not, why would I be opposed to it? Uh, to me, it seems like a terrible career move for a guy who has been fighting opponents like this. I don't know. I don't know how terrible a career move it is. If they, it depends on what your interests are. Uh, if they're going to give you a ton of money and uh, you want a ton of money and they'll do other things for you, then maybe it makes sense for your career. It's not really what I want or what you want. It's what he wants. Um, now, there's an argument to be made that based on who they'll matchmake him with, this could sully his career a little bit, but I don't know. I don't. To me, like the idea of Fedor coming back, I'm not saying I'm not intrigued at all. I'm intrigued a little, a little, but like there's a lot of enthusiasm about that I simply don't share. Um, he is well past his prime. Um, some of these fights you can look up as tune of fights, but I think it's more just maintaining fights. I don't think he's actually going to reclaim any position he once held. I think those days have long since passed. Um, not saying he, you know, uh, can't pull an Arlovsky on us maybe, but I don't think he's been training that way. I don't think he views the game that way. I don't think he has that kind of training around him to bring him up to those kinds of levels or that kind of dedicated trainer or even really that kind of mindset about really becoming a champion again. Um, I, I just, I, I'm not nearly as enamored by his potential comeback as other people. Again, I wouldn't discount it right off the bat, whatever they match him up with. I'll try to keep an open mind about it. But if you're asking me like what my general hunch about things are, my hunch is that he's well, 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 well past his prime. And not out there collecting a paycheck necessarily. I think he still thinks in his ability to reasonably speak and compete. But, um, you know, against anybody with any kind of real skills, I, th I think he'll probably get uh, crushed. I don't know that to be sure, but that's sort of my feeling about it. So, like, this, like, this, um, you know, these, these adorations for these heroes in the sport, they die very hard. You know, I understand that. To me, it's... Like, and this is not just a case of Fedor. This is anyone who really comes back. And it's got me into trouble in the Orlovsky case, although now he's sort of coming back down to earth a little bit. Um, but generally speaking, when someone, and, I, and Orlovsky didn't retire, so his situation is different. But generally speaking, when someone retires and then they come back, I'm only even a little interested if I feel like they haven't lost too much. Now, in the case of St. Pierre, I have some questions because he went out on his hands and knees against uh, Hendricks. I thought he lost that fight. Um, but okay, he won. Um, yeah, he tore his ACL in his time off. He ha but the difference is he has been trained the whole time. He's still a phenomenal athlete. I don't know if he can beat the best, but it's not an idle question. You can make a case, and you can at least, uh, and there, are, there are reasonable assumptions you can make for his ability to compete at that level. To me, I don't know how you could possibly do that with Fedor. It's a completely different scenario. Um, he's competing in an older, uh, less strenuous division than St. Pierre, but it's. He's also degraded as an athlete in ways that are identifi identifiably, you know, that should not be controversial. Like, they're clear. So that's sort of where I'm at. I'm, I'm kind of with you on this one. Like, I don't quite get I don't quite get it. But, uh, I mean, I, I just look around and I see a bunch of people talking about it who are fans. So there clearly is there's interest. Uh, it's 2.15, so let's go to the Twitter machine. You can use the hashtag chat wrappers. Um, and I will get to your tweet. Tweet that out. With Kimbo Slice's tragic passing, what fighter is the biggest draw for Bellator now? Jeez, that wasn't even close. Um, 
Who's done? I mean, maybe Koscheck and Daly. Uh, I have to go back and look at their ratings to see who else has done really well. Um, I don't know. Maybe Ben Henderson. We'll have to see. Someone says, call Training Mask, Diet Mountain Dew, or Casper Mattress. They'd sponsor you. They need to. Uh, we know the entire 200 card, but only one fight for 202. Can you really say 202 may do better at this point? No, I can't really say. I can kind of say. I can say that's sort of the way I'm leaning. Um, I can't definitively declare it. I wouldn't bet my house on it, but that's sort of my general way of leaning. Someone's watching this at a beach bar. You, sir, are a hero and deserve the Congressional Medal of Honor. Would the Ali Act third-party rankings be a hindrance to making any last-minute replacements for title fights? Uh, I don't think it would necessarily have that role. Um, remember, even those rankings can be manipulated where the rankings can say you don't have to fight one versus two. Um, it could be anyone within the top 15, uh, particularly if it's on short notice in the way you're talking about. So this wouldn't necessarily encumber every aspect of matchmaking, but it would fundamentally shift how that control happens. And the question is whether I think fans want to give up that control. They basically entrust the promoter to match their interests. And so because you have this brand and consumer alignment, right? <laughs> I could have made a dirty symbol there. Uh, that's why I think fans are uneasy about it. What are the three top, what are the top three qualities a good journalist who covers MMA should have? Should be a voracious reader. Um, you should be inquisitive about the world in which you live, and um, you should be an effective communicator. A terrible question. Uh, What is the latest regarding the antitrust lawsuit? Uh, hit up Paul Gift, who follows that. Um, there's nothing major that has happened recently, but I think we're still waiting on, I believe, summary judgment. Um, so it says Copa America or Euro. Uh, here's the thing about that. Uh, ESPN does a better job of showing the Euros than Fox does showing Copa America. I'm more interested in Copa America for obvious reasons. You know, there's a regional bias there. I don't, I'm not presenting to you that you should like it in the way I do. I'm just telling you how I feel. Um, but like the Euros are more interesting. Although I'll say this, the Euro games are better in terms of the the play-by-play -play and color commentary. But the Fox desk analysts are more fun. So I'll say that too. Uh, if Mir wasn't suspended, do you think he would have been the choice to face Lesnar? Probably. Wouldn't have been a bad one anyway. If Hunt gets the walk-off KO against Brock, will the world explode? Yes, the world will explode. Look, if you had the chance to change your name to Donk Donkerson, Rick Rickerson, or Trump worshiper, what would you choose? Uh, I would go with Donk Donkerson. Uh, Luke, who would you like to see the Korean zombie fight when he returns from military service in a few months? Anyone. Anyone who is a top 15 contender at 
uh, featherweight, anyone. Could Floyd Mayweather's bodyguards take Dana White's bodyguards in a street fight? The ones I've seen, Floyd's are the biggest humans I've ever seen in my life. They're giant. They're seven feet tall. Like they're just these monster, monster dudes. But I think Dana's bodyguards that I've seen, the one I've seen, is more agile. So I'd probably go with Dana's. But if we're just talking size and power, definitely Floyd's. Uh, how will Wonder Boy handle a fight against Rory McDonald, a guy that doesn't go away easily? He's going to be in it for the long haul. He can't make mistakes. If he gets to the ground, he's got to scramble. Cannot panic, of course. But he's got to really, really be diligent about his own distancing, too. Never really getting too close. Got to be loose. Got to be comfortable. But to me, this is the one who wins the real estate wins the fight. Uh, Luke, who do you see winning the title belts on Friday's World Series of Fighting? Uh, uh, Ivanov versus Copeland. Ivanov. And then Beltor Galvan versus Dantas. Probably Dantas. What are your thoughts on DC's comments on Jones's lack of punching power? I mean, it's not, it's not, um, it's not a secret. He doesn't blow guys away with his fists. Doesn't need to. It turns out. What's your opinion on having Lesnar versus Hunt on Comey instead of Aldo versus Edgar? I don't have. I mean, if if that sort of thing upsets you, then by all means say something. Um, and perhaps I am jaded. Oh man, Arsenal have bid for Bruce Dortmund's Henrik Mkhitaryan. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. My favorite Armenian. Uh, yeah, I mean, but the kind of thing about putting Lesnar in a co-main role, it just it doesn't, I mean, where are you going to put him? Fight pass? I mean, someone says, well, you could put him third on the card. I mean, you could, but no, they're not going to do that. Also, it's like, you know, which is it? The interim titles don't matter or interim titles matter so much you can't move them around. Sort of been over this, like, Oh, the title fights can only be on pay-per-view. Nah, they can be on free TV. Not every title fight matters that much. Some title fights matter a lot. Just let's listen to what the market tells you. The market tells you that the interim title has been trashed and bashed. You know, you guys have to make up your mind one way or the other. Either this is a real thing and you got to treat it with, you know, this holy reverence or it's really not. And you can move things around for a fight with a much bigger celebrity on it. Sort of how I look at it. Um, after his destruction of Pendred, Breeze hasn't been able to replicate that performance. Um, well, because any thoughts why? Well, because Breeze was a terrible matchup for Pendred in ways he hasn't been for these second two guys he's fought. Uh, all right, let's go back. Uh, true or false? Cormier stops Jones at UFC 200. False, I guess. Rousey loses to Holman in a rematch. True. Donald Trump becomes our next president. Um, God, I hope not. It really is an IQ test, isn't it? <laughs> Easiest IQ test to pass ever. You vote for him. You are off the island forever. Uh, okay. 
More questions about Hendo jumping the middleweight line. If Fedor does fight for the or sign with the UFC this year, do you think he will fight immediately for the title? I do not. But um, also, the situation happens. Do you think he will be able to beat either Miocic or Overeem for that belt? Overeem, maybe. Miocic, no. But I would still favor either Miocic or Overeem to beat him. Who coined the phrase juice to the gills? I don't know. I've heard it forever. I don't know where it comes from. Uh, status of UFC sale. Front row Brian tweeted yesterday that UFC may have already done a deal. Any info? I do not have any info. Uh, but stay tuned to Ariel's Twitter account because uh, he appears to have some info. So we'll see. If Chael were to come back for one or a couple more fights after a suspension expires, is there any matchups which you wouldn't mind seeing? I was thinking about maybe Son and Mark Wart too. No, I have no interest in seeing Mark Wart fight again, even against a wrestler like Son. And, uh, you're going to laugh at me, but I'd say Uriah Hall. I think that would be a fun one, actually. Uh, hey, Luke, on the Monday Morning Analyst, you were looking down at your computer for a very large percentage of the interview. Yes, because here is the camera, and Sterling is here on my laptop, so I'm trying to do the best to look at him and get my notes ready and everything else. So, If it looked weird, then I apologize. Uh, you stated in the previous live chat talk of a media union post-UFC handlings of the aerial situation is certainly possible. My question is, has there been any talks of an MMA media union among MMA media peers? Gross, Hunt, Snowden, and others need to get their credentials back, and MMA media shouldn't be afraid of getting their credentials pulled solely because they're doing their job. Like you stated in last week's chat, no one wants that journalists need to look over their shoulders all the time. I don't know. Stay tuned. Good question. Uh, true, false. If Nate Diaz beats McGregor again, he should be in the pound for pound rankings. False. GSP, Chael, and Fedor will fight in the UFC this year. False. Lawler versus McDonald 3 is a, still a sellable fight as a main event. Uh, sure. True. Dead Henderson will not fight Michael Bisping for the title. Probably true. With or without the belt, Habib Nurmagomedov is a pound for pound top 10 fighter. Uh, in my view, he is certainly capable of that, although I haven't even looked at pound for pound rankings, but certainly he is um, one of the better fighters in the sport. Argentina will win Copa America, probably. Fedor beats Maldonado by KO in the first round, almost certainly. Although, watch him lose. Uh, Carlos Condit's possible retirement was totally forgotten. He's actually on my radio show after this, so check it out. I'll find out. I don't know. I mean, I've totally forgotten, somewhat forgotten. UFC 202 should be named Diaz versus McGregor 2 and not McGregor versus Diaz 2 since Nate won their first fight. But then you completely destroy the naming convention. So that's not a good idea. Uh, CM Punk fights at UFC 202. I'll say true, but also it's like, I can't wait till this guy who's not good at fighting fights. Enjoy.
okay. So a guy tested positive with Vada, and then the commission still let him fight. Tested positive for clenbuterol. The A sample showing clenbuterol on his sample. Uh, the B sample hasn't been tested. Oh, apparently uh, it's contaminated meat from Mexico. So maybe that's what they're talking about. That's that's not crazy. That's happened all over. Um, I, I don't know how they determined that exactly it was that or not that, but um, but yeah, that's a real thing. I mean, I know that sounds ludicrous, but it's actually a real thing. Pettis will transition to 145. Will the drastic cut take away from his flair, or is he mentally done? I don't know that he's mentally done yet, but if he can't get a crack in that 145, will certainly tell us a lot. Um, I want to see how his speed translates to 145. As long as there's no drop-off in speed, or maybe it even improves, I think he'll be great. I think he'll be great. Uh, Bellator, is booking these legend fights with the Ken Shamrock at all a real case of promotional malpractice? With the recent death of Kimbo and Dada 5000 having multiple heart attacks in the ring, should Beltor be reassessing their practice of booking legends of the sport just to receive high ratings, as booking them appears to be a very high-risk strategy? You know what's interesting about this? Before that fight, none of us were worried about their health per se. It was actually the – I'm not defending it, of course, uh, but it was actually the Hoist versus Ken fight. That everyone was like, oh, my God, you got the geriatrics fighting. That's the, that's the sad one. I think what it really says, though, is um, – and I said this before, I think, last week – Bellator wants to put on these legend fights. I'm not opposed to it in principle, but I would really prefer that they happen in a state uh, or territory with a very, very strict regulation. That would put my mind at ease about um, whether this guy's medicals are recent, comprehensive, and appropriate. I think that's that's to me what I want to hear. All right, uh, I have to get going. I appreciate everyone watching. Give this video a thumbs up. That'd be cool. By the way, uh, Luke Thomas Show, 4 p.m. today. Sirius XM, I got Carlos Condit, Jason High, and uh, John Franklin, the CEO of Glory. So that should be a lot of fun. So check that out, Sirius XM 93, 4 p.m. I will put this on iTunes and everywhere else. And uh, until next week, enjoy the fights. Oh, no, wait. That's the one from Monday Morning Analyst. Stay frosty.